0: This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, it's great to be with you again. It was uh, about a year ago, and uh, a year ago we still were wearing masks and everything else. So it's good to see some progress uh, in the nation. But it's great to be uh, here in Knoxville, beautiful Knoxville. Uh, Louisville's not that far away, but it's it's a bit different weather and. And we're not near the Smokies, so it's, uh, you're very privileged to live here and to be in such uh, a wonderful church and, and have a pastoral staff that serves you so well. So it's a great privilege to open up God's Word uh, this morning. Uh, as Bill said, we're going to look at the subject of, of marriage, and we're going to take a big picture. I'll, I'll lay that out just in a moment. But um, as we think of the Bible's uh, view of marriage... I thought of uh, three reasons why I wanted to do this, and it wasn't just because Bill said to do it, but uh, there's three important reasons. The first one is just a personal uh, reason. I've been thinking about marriage a lot, my wife and I, this year, because uh, uh, my daughter just uh, last month was engaged, and uh, she's going to be married October 1st. So we have five children, three boys, two girls, and the three boys are married. And the two girls, now the youngest, will be married this year. And uh, it's been a bit of a struggle. (laughs) Uh, When I had the three boys get married, I said, look, we've raised you and we've taught you and you have wonderful spouses, Uh, you're on your own. (laughs) But uh, this one here, uh, I'm wrestling with letting my daughter go and especially my youngest daughter... Uh, my wife and jokes, and my family jokes, they say, you're just like Steve Martin in uh, The Father of the Bride. And if you've seen that movie, that sort of classic presentation of father, daughter, and so on, uh, there's too much of him in me, I'm afraid. So we are rejoicing, though, that um, she has met a wonderful, in God's grace, a wonderful young man, They're both Christians, and so we, we do rejoice, but uh, I'm still wrestling. I'm still thinking about, should I actually perform the ceremony? I'm not sure I'll be able to do that, but um, I did it for my boys, but I'm not sure about my sweet Jessica, so we'll have to see. But beyond that personal reason, right, there are two other reasons that uh, it's important to think about marriage and why the church here is focusing on it, because in Scripture, and really the entire Christian worldview, the whole Christian theology, uh, marriage is is no small thing. Uh, When we take seriously what Scripture says, we realize that marriage is not a product of evolution. It's not just simply a society getting together and say, well, you know, let's create something so that we can raise kids and have some kind of Uh, social continuity or something like that, but uh, marriage is created, and it's created by our triune God. It's created, it's designed, it's ordained to be what we enter into as men and women if God brings two together for our good and ultimately for His glory. Marriage is, we would say, a covenant institution that is designed by him, and it is not to be treated lightly, right? So every time a marriage ceremony takes place, and any time I've had the privilege of performing a marriage, I remind the couple, right, what you're entering into in terms of God's creation and God's design is absolutely essential for your life and for your godliness, and for your good, and ultimately for God's glory. Now, we'll see just in in a moment as we turn to Genesis that marriage also isn't just for a couple's good and to raise children, but it is the foundational building block of an entire society. Now, not everyone since the fall are Christians, and not everyone acknowledges God's Word, but Creation is a created ordinance. It's a created covenant relationship. And whether people acknowledge it or not, it is still true for everybody. Uh, It is still universal. It is to be honored by all. And it is the foundation of society. And when marriage falls apart, inevitably, right? Just there's a direct correlation. When marriage falls apart, society falls apart. And so you can't think about more important subject than marriage itself, right? It's a gracious gift to us, and it is intended to to be properly respected, to be upheld, and to be lived according to God's intent, right? So, it's right and good to think about these things, right? There's really nothing more central to us as humans, and the relationships that we enter into is the marriage relationship. So, that's really Beyond my personal, here's, that's really the first main reason for uh, thinking about the importance of marriage. Now, in contrast to that, and I don't want to spend too much time on that, I've already sort of alluded to this, We doesn't take us to realize that we live in a world and a society that uh, is not valuing marriage as it ought. I right? would we'll just say that, right? And our confusion over marriage is tied to our larger societies sort of our collective identity crisis, right? Uh, We as humans, right, we love to focus on ourselves, but if we do not see who we are in light of God and His creation of us for Him and for His glory, we eventually lose ourselves, right? And that is true of marriage as well, right? In one generation, right? So in 1996, now some of you here you know, you say, well, I was just barely living, but others have been around. In 1996, right, we had already had uh, two children, a third uh, in 1997 coming, but in 1996, Bill Clinton was the president of the country, and they signed in Washington, D.C., the Defense of Marriage Act, right, upholding the sanctity of marriage, upholding uh, heterosexual marriage. That was only 1990. And since then, 2015, all of that was changed, all of that's gone, and now marriage is pretty much in our society, for many, many people, in the eye of the beholder, right? You can pick any gender, you can pick any way that you want to have marriage, we realize that eventually our society is going to open up paths that are going to be horrendous, and we're seeing that all around us. This is not what marriage is supposed to be. It's not what God intended. So, how do we respond to our society? Well, the only way to respond to our society, the antidote to the problem, is to focus on the truth, to focus on what is good and right and what Scripture says. You think of Colossians chapter 2. This is a little different context, but the Apostle Paul exhorts that Colossian church, that seem to be facing um, sort of a compromise of some of their viewpoints and uh, adopting thought from the culture. He says in Colossians 2.8, don't be held captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy. Don't be held captive by a philosophy that depends upon human tradition. But in its place, build a philosophy or a view of life in every area of life that depends upon Christ, That is the antidote, right? So that includes marriage, right? So if we're going to build our life on the truth, we must then say, what does the Bible say is the truth about marriage? And what does God want us to know about his responsibilities that he's created and so on? So how are we going to proceed? Well, Bill already mentioned that what we're going to do is uh, we're gonna take sort of that bird's eye view of the Bible, right? We'll have to do it quickly, we won't we realize that uh, this could take a long time, but uh, you have done other texts, I saw in uh, sermons previously, someone's looked at 1 Corinthians 7 on singleness, and, and uh, I think it was last week looking at first, uh, or Matthew chapter 19 on Jesus, and looking at divorce, and what he said about marriage, and so on, but we're going to offer a, a big picture, so what we call a, a biblical theology, a whole Bible view of what marriage is. Uh, we can look at individual texts in the bible and we must do that but it's always important to sort of step back and say well how do those individual texts fit in terms of the whole right we're convinced that god's word is a unified word right it's not just a human word given to us by ancient men but it's god is given to it to us as a unified revelation unfolding his plan from creation to new creation and marriage is part of that plan. In fact, it's a very, very important part as it leads us from creation to Christ. And eventually, we move to the point of how marriage is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So we want to sort of look back at a whole Bible presentation and we will discover God's purpose in marriage, uh, what He intends by it, why marriages go wrong, right? Uh, And how... Every Christian marriage, by God's grace, can fulfill in some some even imperfect way until Christ comes, God's original intent, and even more, point to a greater reality, a greater reality that we already enter into in terms of our relationship to Christ and His people that will reach its consummation in a new heavens and a new earth, right? That's the kind of big picture we want to sketch. Now, we'll do so by laying out, right, sort of humans, we would say, in a fourfold state or a fourfold way, right? Uh, It's only a Christian view that understands humanity in terms of a fourfold state. Our world doesn't understand this because they do not believe in creation and they do not believe in a historic fall, Our world just thinks, well, we just sort of have popped into here. Existence, we've come from an evolutionary process, that type of thing. But no, the scripture will say we were created good. We were created in what was known as an original situation that now no longer exists, sadly, right? We live now in a fallen order, and all of that goes back to history, right? The opening chapters of Genesis. And we can look then at marriage in terms of what it was originally intended to be. Right? And then what happened to it in terms of its impact by sin, and then as restored and redeemed in Christ, and then as ultimately a revelation of something greater. <laughs> in terms of Christ and his church that then really signifies even in a greater way the significance of our marriages and how they can bear witness to that as we live and await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to look at this sort of storyline of the Bible, creation to new creation, fourfold step, creation, fall, sort of redemption centered in Christ and ultimately a new heavens and new earth. Now, as we do so, we will turn now to the opening chapters of Genesis, and I'm sure you've turned here many, many times as you think of marriage and our creation and so on, and particularly our focus will be on Genesis chapter 2, right? Genesis 2, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, and this is where we see right before us how marriage is created and designed and even something of its original intent, it sets, really, the pattern of everything that there follows thereafter. And, of course, Genesis 3 will follow and show what goes wrong with that original created uh, marriage. So, Genesis 2, verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Now, before we look at Genesis 2, obviously, these, Genesis 2 is set in the context of chapter 1 and 2, right? And 1 and 2, as you probably well know, are two sort of complementary accounts of creation. Uh, It's as if chapter 1 that goes all the way through chapter 2 verse 3 gives you sort of the big picture of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. He just spoke, and there's the universe. And then by six successive days, He shapes and prepares the universe, it's there, but he makes it habitable, which leads to ultimately a kind of sixth day, right? So, he separates things and forms things, and then on the sixth day, he makes us. We, in some sense, right, are the pinnacle of creation, right? And you see that in chapter 1, verses 24, all the way to the end of chapter 1, where there's a lot of description regarding us, And you'll know from that text, if you look at, say, verse 24 and verse 25, there's a constant emphasis that God makes uh, all these creatures after their kinds. But in verse 26, right, and we're often too familiar with this, right? There's a total difference with us, right? It signifies our utter uniqueness. God says in verse 26, let us Make man, and that us there probably, lots of discussion on this, but probably is within God himself, right? God is Father, Son, and Spirit, sort of the intra-Trinitarian council. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let him rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground, right? That highlights humans are in a different category than any other created thing, Our society's lost that again, right? They make us just simply an evolved product. That's not how it's presented here. We are image. Image means we are representatives of God. We are to be rulers over His world. We are to be those who are caretakers of His world for God's glory. And it says, over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and so on. And then notice in verse 27, it says, so God created man. Now, in our society, you know, people don't like just that use of man, right? They want to make it inclusive and so on. But the text is very, very important here. Man here is what we'd say collective. This is a way of referring to all of humanity, right? He makes the human race, right? God created man, all humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created him, and then there is differentiation, right? Humans are united in that they're the image and likeness of God, right? Equal dignity, equal value, equal worth, yet distinction this is where you get from Scripture, even though our society doesn't like this, you have full equality, yet difference. This is what we call by a complementary relationship. And it's very important, right? This will be part of God's design and order. He has made us unified, but He is distinguished from us Male and female. And then, of course, you have the sense of this marriage isn't yet mentioned. It's picked up in chapter two. But you have in verse 28 God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living creature. So, obviously, be fruitful and multiply speaks of maleness and femaleness. Our society debates gender and sex. Well, you can't separate those two. Right? There's a maleness and femaleness, and first you see it in terms of sexual differentiation, and you see it in terms of be fruitful and multiply. Right? Now, marriage isn't mentioned. This is just the big picture. It's assumed, right, and it's then developed in chapter 2. But we can see here humans, male and female, designed for many purposes, but one of them was to have children to rule over the earth together, and there's the sense in which together they become God's stewards and representatives and rulers. There's no higher calling. No angel is put in this task, right? This is something unique to humans. And then you have God's verdict of this in verse 31. It's good, not just good, it's very good, right? And then God rests, and you have that first account of creation. The second account of creation, in verse 4 of chapter 2, just sort of really, in some sense, expands on that sixth day, I think, right? Uh, He's giving more detail about how God created man, male and female, and unpacking what it means to ultimately be fruitful and multiply, and obviously centered in a marriage relationship. And that's how chapter 2 goes. It's focused now on us. So that God makes Adam first, that's true in terms of the text, and we have that in verse 5 and 6, that'll become very, very important for later biblical authors will refer to this. The Apostle Paul will refer to this in 1 Timothy 2. So God created humans male and female, but in creating us, there was first Adam, and then there will be the creation of Eve. But before we get to Eve, Adam is placed in this paradise, this Eden. Uh, He is given a command by God, right? God speaks to him and is in relationship. There's a covenant relationship that is going on here. And he's commanded to take care of the garden and to obey God. And then we read, as it's a very striking statement. Again, we're so used to it. But in verse 18, when you read what it says here, you think of chapter 1, verse 31, and then you read chapter 2, verse 18, and you're supposed to put the two together, where in chapter 1, verse 31, everything is very good. And then in verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good. It's very striking. Not good. And what's not good? It's not good for this man to be alone. I will create a helper suitable for him. Now, in chapter 1, we already have a sense of differentiation, but here we have again the emphasis here is a helper suitable for him means she is his equal, right? She's going to be from him, right? That's already given to us in chapter 1, 26, and 27, yet there's difference a helper suitable. There's a companion. There's one who will serve beside him. And of course, this is already giving you a sense of how this marriage relationship is going to work. Two will come together. They will be equals in God's sight, but they will have role differences and they together will function to rule the world and to raise children and to carry out God's commands in the world. This helper best is understood as an indispensable partner an indispensable helper to fulfill God's intent, and they will do that together. And then we read in verse 19, you almost think it's sort of strange, but it's not, right? right? Verse 18, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper. And this is how this helper comes about, right? And God makes it very clear in verses 19 and 20 that there's nothing in the rest of creation that will be a helper for Adam, right? You can't look to the animal kingdom. You can't look to any other created thing. It's going to have to be a unique creation from him in order to be a helper suitable for him. And that's what this 19 through 20 is all about. We read, the Lord God formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. So here we have Adam carrying out a scientific endeavor. He's naming animals, he's classifying them, he's ruling over the world. And whatever he gave the name to the living creature, that was its name, right? To livestock, beasts, but, and this is where the text goes, right? But, as he's looking at all these animals right? He's looking for someone that's suitable for him. None of them are, right? He is the ruler over them, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And then you have the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took from the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman. Here's a creation project, right? So in chapter 1, you don't have the kind of detail here, but here you have God himself creates from Adam this one who will be woman out of man. And out of man, coming from his side, coming from his rib, emphasizes she is of equal substance, right? Equal nature with him, right? She's not just like these other creatures. She's from him. There's this almost, which is going to be anticipated later on, this, this one body, right? This one flesh, she's from him yet she's going to be a helper suitable for him right and she gives to adam a gift and adam's response is poetic right Uh, he sings right Uh, he says in verse 23 bone of my bones flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man even these Phrase these terms we have in English here, woman and man, right? And we, we, we see the similarity. In Hebrew, it's even closer, right? They're they're play off the same words, right? Uh, this one is from me, equal to me, yet different, right? And here is the exclamation of what Adam says in response. And then you have verse twenty-four, which is such an important text. In some sense, the whole narrative is leading to this, right? For This reason, right? All of this, he's alone. He must create a helper suitable. Nothing from the created order, but now he creates this woman who he'll call Eve, and for this reason, and this is now establishing the entire ground of civilization, right? Entire society that will come. A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife and they will become one flesh right that text is not only given here it's picked up and assumed in Leviticus 18, where all the prohibitions against this one-flesh relationship are given to you. The Lord Jesus picks it up in Matthew 19. It's mentioned also in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians 5. This text is so, so important. And it lays down here the ground for this covenant relationship of marriage. God has created Adam and Eve. God has created the first couple to be that which is united, one flesh, and then everyone thereafter, they will be fruitful and multiply, and everyone, they'll have children, and those boys will leave that father and mother, have a wife, start a whole new family relationship, and then society grows, right? That's why it's the foundation and pillar of all of society that comes. And in here we have, and classic marriage text in terms of verse 24, one leaves... (laughs) One starts a new family relationship, one still honors father and mother, yes, but that family relationship is something that is now closer than even the previous family relationship in that sense, right? It's a new family relationship. The one flesh certainly speaks of sexual relations, but more than that, right? She is from him, she is a helper to him. Uh, There is to be now a fully shared life, together, ruling over, taking, uh, fulfilling God's command. And this one flesh relationship, as it's worked out in Scripture, prohibits any entrance of anything that breaks this marriage bond. Of course, Jesus makes that very clear in Matthew 19. What God created in the first, this one flesh relationship should not be broken, right? Till death do us part. And that's what this is emphasizing here. This is how marriage is created, and you can get a sense of what it means in the original situation. Fully shared relationship. Uh, The bringing in of children. The ruling over the world. There's nothing in human relationships that is more intimate and closer than this. Now, out of this will come children and other families, and there's all kinds of relationships that we have among ourselves. But this here is the most intimate, the closest, and God has designed it for Adam's good. And He's designed it in creation to continue for our good as well. It's a gracious gift from God, right? Now, that's the original. That's the good. That's what will be recaptured in some sense in redemption. But of course, Genesis 3 says, all oh, things go terribly, terribly wrong, right? Now, it's not just marriage that goes wrong. Everything goes wrong. Right? And so we have in Genesis 3, marriage in a post-fall world, right? Sin enters in, right? So in the verse six verses, we have the temptation. And at the heart of that temptation is the utter foolishness and stupidity. Humans want the place of God, right? Everything, right? We become idolaters, right? And that's why eventually even our sexual sins are viewed in scripture as idolatry. We don't take what God says and the goodness of it. We say, we'll do it our own way. (laughs) We will create our own view of marriage and however we want to live, which is, of course, looking to the creaturely realm instead of the creator, which is idolatry. Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 1. After their taking of the fruit you just see a domino effect of consequences, verses 7 and following. The eyes of both of them are opened. They realize they were naked. They sowed fig leaves, so they're, they're already hiding from God, trying to cover their sin. right? And then you begin to see the effects, not only on the whole world. We won't look at all the effects of sin, but we're thinking primarily of marriage. You see the effects even on marriage. The first thing you see is the two Adam in first rejoicing that he had Eve the woman bone of my bone now says it's your fault God that you gave her to me right here you have blame shifting right so they're hiding from God God is calling them to account in verse 9 where are you and God's not learning from this they're asking you know I can't find out where you are he's calling them to account right it's like a parent to a child who knows they've done something wrong you say what have you done and you're, they're supposed to come clean, but eventually what does uh, Adam say in verse 10 or verse 11? He says, uh, well, verse 12, he says, the woman who you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. And see what the implicit assumption is here. You gave her to me, I didn't want her. Uh, she's to blame and you have blame shifting all around, right? Here's the beginning of the war between the sexes, right? And it happens on both fronts. It's not just, oh, the males are the problem and the females aren't, or the females are the problem and the males aren't, right? Sin comes universally to all of us, right? That particularity is picked up in verse 16, a very, very important verse that speaks in some sense of uh, what the problem is going to be, right? Uh, So after, right, God pronounces judgment upon the serpent, He pronounces judgment upon the woman, and then judgment upon Adam and the entire human race. You have in verse 16, in his bringing judgment upon the woman, he says, I'll greatly increase your pains in childbearing, right? She's the one who bears children. Uh, she's the one who will then, the fall affects every domain of our life, and it affects that domain. In Adam, it affects all of his domain, right? But she, he, the Lord says here, Your desire will be for your husband, he will rule over you. Now, what is this desire? Lots of discussion in the history of the church, but chapter 4 is the best commentary on this. In chapter 4, verse 7, the same words of desire and rule are used, and this is in the context of Cain dealing with sin. So, God says in chapter 4, verse 7, He says to Cain, If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must rule it, right? Same two words, just one chapter later, right? That's the best commentary on what's going on in chapter 3, verse 16. What's happened in sin? Well, God says to the woman, right, you were created to be a helper, but you are going to desire. Desire there is not a positive. The desire is you want to take his place, the ruling as well is not positive, right? So that Eve will want to take Adam's role. And what will Adam do ever since the fall and men tend to do is to rule harshly, right? And this is the kind of tension that you see within the sexes as you run across the canon, right? Uh, since the fall, right? Marriage that's designed to be this loving cooperative relationship complementary roles and so on working together to fulfill god's mandate now you have the woman saying i want your spot and the man saying i will treat you harshly right you see that all the way worked out right even in christian marriages where there's redemption and so on that can still show up right and we then have to we'll see in ephesians 5 this reversed right Uh, It's not that the woman is to take the role. There is a proper submission. The man is not to rule. He is to love in leadership. That's the contrast. But here in the fall, you begin to see this broken down, right? This complementary relationship falling apart. Sin distorts everything, including the marriage relationship. And out of this will then come the distortions of marriage. We see that in Sodom. We see that in Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 in the Old Covenant is the one passage where God just lists one sexual sin after another, and all of them are what the nations are doing, and God says, don't do what the nations are doing, right? And all of them are breaking the one flesh relationship. That's all that they're doing. And God says, no, this marriage is to be permanent. It is to be one flesh relationship. It is to be given to one another, but sin distorts it. And in the Old Testament, we run into all kinds of examples of this, right? And we even have polygamy in the Old Testament, sometimes allowed. That is not the norm, right? The norm is tied to creation. And in fact, this is what I think Song of Solomon is doing in the Bible, right? Song of Solomon isn't just sort of Christ's love for His church. That's true, many have seen that, but I think it's in the Old Testament, it's giving us still a reminder that God's purposes for creation that go all the way back still are reflected in this song where there's an exclusive love of a husband for a wife and a wife for her husband and so on. Solomon celebrates that as well. And then also as you work through the Old Testament covenants, It's very, very important to see that God takes on the idea in terms of His covenant relationship with Israel that He is the great bridegroom, that Israel is the bride. In all of these areas, marriage now is taking on, in some sense, as you work through the Bible, a greater significance. God is acting like what He created in the first place, and we'll see it's not that God is just following the pattern of marriage. In some sense, marriage was created to reveal that pattern of God and His people, right? But this is what happens in the fall. Everything is distorted. So, turn over to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 now, you walk through the Old Testament, you come to the fulfillment in Christ. Here we see now marriage in terms of its redemption in Christ. Ephesians 5, 21 and following, right? This passage, again, as you think of it in terms of the storyline of the Bible, right, is directed to Christians, right? This passage cannot be applied directly to a fallen order, right, in terms of non-Christians, right? It's assuming not only the creation of marriage, it's assuming the fall, but it's also assuming our redemption in Christ, right? Everything of these instructions are given to people who have repented of their sins, who have believed in the gospel, who have put their faith in Christ, who have been transformed by the Spirit. These instructions here are the reversal of what occurs in the fall and all of the warfare that occurs between the sexes and so on. It's very, very important to realize that. Marriage is created and ordained by God, but we are fallen. And marriage cannot be all that it's intended to be unless there is redemption, right, we've reminded that, so the ideal is still held out, yet there has to be ultimately a transformation of heart, at the heart of marriage is the giving of one for another, which involves here, as Paul will make very clear, self-sacrifice, in our sin, we don't self-sacrifice, right, we want it our way, our, our, our instructions, our direction, we want uh, to be the center of everything that we do. And what is a Christian at their heart? They're one who has repented and believed, who's been transformed by the Spirit, who's come to faith in Christ. And this is why, right, you cannot treat these instructions here as just simply some ancient wisdom. This is instructions that are building off of creation order, but more than that, it's redemption in Christ, right? All of the instructions here are centered in a husband and wife's relationship to one another as believers who first have Christ at the center of their life, who are first seeking to honor Him. This is the way that marriage can be restored. And the hope of marriages, the original intent is no longer uh, seen in our world, but it can be restored in Christ Jesus. Now, in verse 21, you have, in some sense, the introduction of this section. Submit one to another out of reverence for Christ, right? There's a sense in which, in the body of Christ, we submit to one another. Yet, there is a further submission. There's further relationships, and that is first picked up in marriage, right? In marriage, we have first the instructions to women, to wives. And it's interesting, there's only 40 words given. 115 words are given to men, right? That says uh, God has something to say (laughs) to men, right? In terms of their responsibilities. But we first, in verse 22 and 24, through 24, have the instructions for wives. And notice how this is a reversal of Genesis 3, right? So what are wives to do? They're to submit to their husbands. This is the opposite of that desire, that taking role, right? It's a loving submission. Submission here doesn't mean just a doormat right submission is what that helper was intended to be together working together to fulfill God's intent to rule the world right there's a role difference but there's still a complement that takes place our society turns everything to a radical egalitarianism where everything is equal even roles and so on no that's not the intent but the submission here isn't just you know follow husband's orders no matter what All of this, remember, is in the context of Ephesians 4 through 6 where there is putting off and putting on a proper relationship to the Lord. All of that is assumed so that this is a loving relationship that is being emphasized. And then you have the motivation for it. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, right? This isn't just ancient wisdom. This is ultimately that which is tied to Christian redemption. Wives, as you submit to the Lord, your loving head, well, husband is a head of you as well, right? And there's a loving submission, and the reason for that is grounded in headship. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And then it speaks of the church as Christ's body. Uh, The church is that which He is the Savior. Already that's assuming here, right? That the head of the church is the one who doesn't just rule over His people in a callous way. He loves His people. This is His body. He will care for them. That will be picked up specifically with the husband's instructions. But there is a headship here. Again, our society does not want to hear this. They want to say, no, 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 this is not the case but if this is not properly followed out, right, in Christian redemption, we will then eventually lose what marriage is and its glory and its beauty. God has created this with design and order for our good, right? Headship is analogous to Christ and the church, right? And this is then picked up with the instructions to husbands. Verse 25, husbands, it doesn't say exert your headship. It doesn't say from Genesis 3:16 rule, right? It says love. Now, he is ahead. He is to lead. Right? Christ is the head of his church and he leads his church, right? Yet there is a loving relationship that's here. That's what was there in the beginning and that's what gets distorted in the fall and that's what gets recaptured in christian salvation that shows itself in a christian marriage that's the what it should be right husbands love your wife just as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her we celebrate communion this giving of himself up what does that involve well we think of god the son right taking on our humanity philippians 2 humbling himself even to death all of that was a self-sacrifice for us that is not exerting his power exerting his he has all authority but he he is willing to humble himself i mean this is the role of the husband now some ways i speak as a man obviously and i'd have to (laughs) my wife speak as on terms of wives and that type of thing but i think this looks really hard right this is, this is the, in some sense, I mean, this role of loving wives as Christ loved the church, there's no greater love, right? Self-sacrifice, that's what the husband is to do. So this role of headship, this role of leadership, right? This is how it's defined, right? And it's then tied to what Christ has done for his church. And then what has Christ done for his church? He, has done, he is he's concerned with the total well-being of his bride. He wants to make her holy. He has died so that she be a holy bride, right? He has died so that she be cleansed through the very washing of the water, which is just a form of cleansing. It doesn't refer to baptism. It's a washing. It's a a transformation of the spirit by the word, the preaching of the gospel. Uh, It's to present her in the end, Christ's whole work is to present his church as this radiant Uh, church without stain or wrinkle or blemish holy and blameless you have the sense that christ now is very very concerned in every area of the church's life to make his bride holy radiant so that she will stand before him fully justified sanctified glorious right well i mean obviously the parallel here the analogy is the husband how is he then to lead his wife to her he used to be concerned with her total well-being, right? He used to be concerned with her spiritual welfare, her growth, her life, her flourishing as a, as a wife and, and, and possibly a mother and depending on what happens. I mean, you're, this is just a total giving over and this is what a Christian marriage should be. It's presented as beautiful, a total commitment, a, a shared relationship. This is what the one flesh relationship is supposed to be, right? And you see it now even more clearly in terms of what Christ has done for the church and what that means for then a husband and wife's relationship to one another, right? Now, Christian marriage is still, right? We still live as we're in Christ, yet we're not yet glorified. Uh, We still sin. We still gloriously, right, have all of our forgiveness and justification in Christ, but we're still growing in grace, right? And Christian marriages often aren't what this ideal is to be, but it can be, right? In the hope of the gospel, right, marriages can be transformed, our lives transformed. In Christ, right, we can be made new people, and that's what makes this possible, and that's why these instructions are addressed to Christians in the church and so on. But there's one thing else to notice here, and this moves to now the end of, sort of the end of the story of the Bible, right? Uh, Marriage is not only presented as redeemed in Christ, but marriage is also a revelation. Paul will use this term mystery. It's a revelation of something greater. The apostle Paul gives us an insight here as to, in some sense, God's even original purpose for creation, right? Notice what he says in verse 29, right? He says in verse 28, we'll pick up, uh, he's picking up Christ in the church. The husbands loving wives in this same way. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body. But he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. He's unpacking this church, Christ-church relationship. We are members of his body, right? The church is members of Christ's body. And then verse 31, he goes back to Genesis 2. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. And then verse 32, you would expect him to say, this is what God originally intended in the beginning, and this is what marriage is supposed to be. In your Christian marriages, you are recapturing what was lost in the fall. This is what a redeemed marriage looks like. Full stop. But he says something more, right? This, he says, quoting Genesis 2.24, which clearly in its context is referring to human marriage. He says, this is a profound mystery. And then he says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, what is Paul doing here? Well, it's important to understand this word mystery. We sang about it in one of the songs that we were led in worship. Right? Mystery in Scripture isn't what you think about you know, reading a mystery novel. <laughs> who done it, or watching a, a TV show or something, right? Uh, mystery is a revelation term. Mystery is referring to God has a plan from eternity, right? We know of that in Scripture, right? God has, before he ever created a world, <laughs> he planned everything, right? And then to show us what his plan was, he brought about The stage to outwork that plan, right? He created uh, the world and it becomes the stage of his activity, right? That's how you should view creation, the theater of his glory. That's what Calvin said. So he creates a stage, he unfolds that plan through history. That plan begins in creation in some sense and moves all the way to eternity, a new heavens, a new earth. That's what mystery is getting at. This mystery is planned before the foundation of the world. It's hidden to us, but over time, it gets unveiled to us. That's what mystery means. Now, when you see what he's saying here, this is what he's making a case for, and this is very, very important. He's, in some sense, giving even a further dimension to marriage. It's not just between humans. It's not just to be seen totally at the horizontal level. But what he's saying here is that in God's plan, right, God, in some sense, the original, the original purpose of everything was for God to create a people for himself. Right? From all eternity, right, God has chosen to make a world and ultimately to create us to create a people, to redeem those people, and to unite them to Christ for all eternity. So that what is the most foundational relationship of everything is Christ's relationship to his people. Right? That's what goes on for eternity. Right? That's what we are a part of in terms of his redeemed people, his covenant people. Yet what he's saying here is that human marriage was created by God to not be an end in itself. Marriage was created to be a means to display this end. Now, we could also say marriage has many purposes. Obviously, we've seen some of that. Uh, It brings together a one-flesh relationship. It brings shared total commitment to one another. It, It brings about children and family and society and so on. But that's not the only, in a sense, ultimate end of marriage. Marriage was created by God to give us a revelation, a picture, something that we could understand of His great love for us, Christ's great love for the church, right? So that as important as marriage is, and it's very, very important, we've tried to stress that, right? As it works from creation all the way through redemptive history. It's very, very interesting, right? That marriage in the end will cease. There will be no marriage in the new heavens and new earth as we know it, right? We will know one another and so on, but there will not be the same thing as what we have in our human domain, right? Uh, Why is that? because in the end, marriage was created for many purposes, but the greatest purpose was to reveal something of God's covenant love for His people, of what it would mean to have Christ as the great bridegroom, uh, seek out His bride, to redeem that bride so that in a new heaven, in a new earth forever, there's the marriage supper of the Lamb, there's the enjoyment of the presence of the triune God in the face of Christ forever and ever and ever, We see this at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21. As John sees this vision of a new heavens and new earth, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, from God, but notice what this holy city is, and only the book of Revelation can do this, right? It's hard to get a holy city to be a bride or a person, right? But he's got a mixture of pictures here, right? I see a new heavens and new earth. I see this new Jerusalem coming down, and this new Jerusalem is the bride, right? A bride beautifully dressed for her husband, which of course is the great bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that's identified in verse 9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, right? Now, this is how eventually the end goes, right? Now, if we look at marriage now in light of the end, right, we realize, yes, our marriages won't continue forever, but it invests, right, incredible significance to that marriage. Our marriage isn't just about, okay, we, have, we don't want to be lonely. We have a shared relationship. Well, it's good. We want to have you know, children and be fruitful and multiply and rule over the world. But our marriages, especially as they were originally intended and in, in redemption, our marriages are to reflect in a husband and wife relationship something of what will be for eternity Christ's relationship to us, right? Oh, I tell you, if you, if you thought through that, right, how you would talk to your spouse would be a little different, right? How husbands would love their spouses would then say, I, I, this is supposed to reflect Christ and what is going to be in eternity, right? And wives' submission is not just simply, well, I've got to do this type of thing, but it's as to the Lord, and and I am the bride of this this husband and, and bridegroom, but it, this reflects a greater relationship. And so marriage, as you think of the big picture of it, I mean, you can't have anything more significant right anything more beautiful that is God's good gift a good gift that points beyond itself to something far greater that we now have in Christ and his church right now our society doesn't get this does it right uh, as it loses God's Word and the truth of God's Word it still continues right marriage will continue the Noahic covenant until the end of time people will be giving in marriage and and so on, right? That will continue, right? It's all part of creation order. We expect that, right? And we encourage that, right? Yet, right, there's a misunderstanding of what marriage is, We will only know God's purpose, His intent for it, the beauty of it, how to even live it, right? Especially in light of the fall and, and understanding our, our hearts, right, are, are the problem and our lives the problem. We need redemption and so on. We'll only be able to carry that out if we see marriage in terms of really the, this big picture, right? What it is in the original state and what it is, what's, what's corrupted it, right? And, and why we're the way we are and, and what happens to us in redemption and, and, and what it's pointing forward to. And that invests in a Christian marriage, Right? that we take it seriously, right? That we ultimately say this is good and this this is a witness to the world not only in terms of His created order, but a witness to the gospel, right? You realize that in a Christian marriage you could be a witnessing to the gospel as someone says, well, why do you two love one another and work together for uh, your good and everything else? Because ultimately, right, God has created us and He's created marriage and He's created this to reflect christ in the church right and there's a gospel witness right it's it's a witness to that and in broken marriages right and in the fall and all of us come from all kinds of backgrounds right there could be healing in christ right there could be marriages restored Uh, for those who are not even married right You, you can look at this as you look at scripture and say well that's the aim that i should be looking for what kind of spouse should i be looking for what what should i be aiming for shooting for what what's the truth of what i'm looking at and even if God never allows us to be married, right, we're reminded right, that even though marriage is very, very important, it's still not the ultimate relationship. Right? Uh, God has created us for himself. He's created us. Even if we never experience marriage in this life, we can honor it. We can help others in it. But we realize that the greatest relationship is to know Christ and to be related to his church. That is what will go on forever, right? So marriage is crucial, significant, important. This big picture is how we understand all those texts, right? From creation to new creation. And I trust and pray that as we think of, if you're married or thinking of marriage and any situation that you are in, that you will take God's word and say, yes, this is to be valued. It's not to be laughed at or caricatured or diminished. It needs to be upheld. It needs to be fought for, right? Uh, In your individual lives, even in the society, it needs to be fought for, right? We need to say, this is for our good, and this ultimately is to point to Christ and His church. Well, may we each, right, know uh, the purpose of marriage, and more than that, ultimately know the purpose of the gospel, right? That we need to be those who are united to Christ, right? And as we live our lives for His glory, being a witness to Him and bearing witness, especially in the day and age that we live. Well, let us pray and commit these things to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank You for marriage. Thank You for how You have created it and designed it. Marriage is no small thing. It runs across our entire Bible from the opening chapters, signifying even who we are as male and female and how a proper use of our sexuality and relationship should occur, and it runs all the way to the new creation. And it reminds us that we need, first and foremost, to know you as our great covenant God, our Creator and Lord, in Jesus Christ our Lord. So we pray that as we fought through marriage, as we leave even this week to live our lives, that we will stand for what is right and true, that in our own lives that we will reflect something of your word to our eternal good, and more than that, to the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus, our great bridegroom. We ask all of these things in his name and for his sake, amen.